What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Hola, amigos. This is Ray Hudson from Being Sports and Sirius XMFC, and you are listening to Barça Talk. Today on Barça Talk, FC Barcelona lost their opening match in La Liga to Athletic Bilbao. We have a full match review. The Spanish Super Cup will not be played until next January, and we'll debate the pros and cons of the new format. And our team of correspondents reviews the summer transfer business of FCB Femini and Barcelona B. And now the news. The transfer topic of the summer is nearing its expiration date. With the Spanish and French transfer windows set to close on September 2nd, the short-term future of Neymar will soon be decided. Though many rumors of a transfer to Real Madrid or his old club Barcelona have kept the transfer rumor mill running all summer, no transfer has yet taken place. Neymar's attorney was spotted in Barcelona early last week, and by the weekend it was confirmed that Paris Saint-Germain and Barcelona were in discussions, but the PSG sporting director, Leonardo Araujo, told RMC Sport that despite the talks, nothing has advanced. As the player with the largest price tag in the world transfer market at the moment, however, any interested party might consider his recent foot injuries in February of 2018 and January of this year before giving too much for him. The former director of PSG's medical services, Dr. Eric Roland, told Le Parisien that the risk of relapse in Neymar's foot is very likely if he returns to competitive action too soon. Despite Leonardo's assertion that Neymar's foot is healthy, this may explain why the Brazilian has been left off the squad for PSG's first matches rather than the potential of his departure, and it may give pause to those at Barcelona looking for a better deal on a Neymar transfer. Speaking of injuries, Lionel Messi has remained off the squad with a calf strain he picked up either in training or during the Copa America. The injury was reported by the club on August 5th, the same day that Messi returned to training in Barcelona. A projection for his return has not been made, while Messi continues his recovery work apart from the team. Ernesto Valverde told the press last Thursday that individual training is very different to playing a match, and they are taking a wait-and-see approach to Messi's match fitness. And the newly signed goalkeeper Neto suffered a wrist fracture in training on August 11th. He underwent surgery, and his recovery has been projected at six to eight weeks. The injury has placed Barcelona B goalkeeper Iñaki Peña on the first-team bench for the time being. An August 9th court ruling on the conflict between La Liga and the Royal Spanish Football Federation over the scheduling of matches on Mondays and Fridays in La Liga Santander and La Liga Smart Bank, the second-tier division, decided to allow the scheduling of Friday matches but not Monday matches. An appeal from La Liga may have upended the beginning of the league schedule, and while the decision has not been reached on the appeal, the league was allowed to go forward with Friday matches, beginning with the Barcelona Athletic match last Friday. In response to the actions of La Liga, the RFEF has called for the resignation of La Liga president, Javier Tebas. Reports surfaced on Friday, which have been confirmed, that a loan transfer deal between FC Barcelona and FC Bayern Munich for Philippe Coutinho has been reached. Bayern CEO Karl-Heinz Rummenich confirmed that both the clubs and the player had reached a deal last Wednesday. He added that there will be an option to buy Coutinho after the loan period ends. 
Though a loan fee has not been disclosed, ESPN FC reported that their sources confirmed Bayern will pay Coutinho's full salary. At the 40th Peñas Congress earlier this month, FC Barcelona president Josep Bartomeu announced, among other things, that the new Johan Cruyff Stadium will be opening on August 27th. This is the first part of the Espai Barça project. Once the new 6,000-seat stadium is in operation at the Ciutat Esportiva Joan Gamper outside Barcelona, the mini-estadi, across from the Camp Nou, will be demolished. And the Spanish Super Cup will be played with a new format and a new schedule this year. The field is expanding to four teams that includes the runners-up from La Liga and the Copa del Rey. It'll be played as a tournament between Real Madrid, Valencia, Atletico Madrid, and FC Barcelona in Saudi Arabia in January of 2020, with two semifinal matches followed by a single final match. Last year's edition was the first time the competition was held under the single match format and in a neutral location. More on that, plus FCB Femini, Barcelona B, and our match review of the first team loss to Athletic Bilbao in today's episode. All right, this is Barca Talk. I'm Brian Henderson in Buffalo, New York. Joining me as always is Gabriel Quiroga. Brian, Brian, my Barca brother from another mother. How you doing, buddy? I'm doing well. And by the way, it is Brian, Brian, my Barca brother from another mother, PhD. I was going to say that. How's my <laughs> second favorite doctor? <laughs> Who's your first favorite doctor? You know, my pediatrician, you know. Oh, sure. <laughs> See, I thought, I thought it was going to be Dr. J. No, 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 not Dr. J. You're my second. You'll be my second. Okay, that's fine. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, for listeners of the show who are who are aware, Gabriel might sound a little different to you this week. Uh, he's on the road. You're in France at the moment, correct? This is correct. I'm in uh, Brittany, France, in the northwest coast of France, where the oysters are amazing, the wine flows, and the weather is even better. So, yeah. Where, where the oysters flow like wine, and the, <laughs> and the wine... <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. So you're, yeah. So you're still on your on your holidays. Yeah, I'm on my holidays, and then I'm here till about the 27th of this month, and then I head back to San Francisco to go visit my family. So nice, yeah. San Luis Obispo. Correct. Beautiful slow land. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, yeah, I'm still just uh, just here in Buffalo doing the Buffalo life, um, and you know, I want to say just la- on Saturday. I I just posted for our Patreon community the the third of three um, in our series of audio yearbooks from last year, and it was I worked I was working on them for a little while, and then it came down to the wire, and I really wanted to get everything released before the first game, and the um, the Copa del Rey episode, which we did put out on this podcast feed. Uh, everything just took a lot of time looking for good clips and then producing it all. Uh, but I was able to get all three out and I did the champions league, the third, the final one in the series on Saturday. I had it ready for Friday, but I didn't want to, um, jinx match day one. Uh, turns out didn't really matter, (laughs) but so all, all of those episodes are out. And, you know, I just got to say we had, I had some great conversations with, uh, these journalists, Robbie Dunn, Diego Lorraine and Roy Nimmer. And putting the episodes together was kind of a new challenge for me going through that much audio and pulling out the clips. And I think those episodes came together really well. Uh, they did. Not not really well. They came out excellent, Brian. Oh, thank you. you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, as just a podcast fan, I've listened to the Champions League one four times already. Like, it's so good. And also just listening from the different points of view of the journalist as not just fans of the of Barca, you know, just to get their 
perspective of the Champions League run, I just thought was really great. So kudos to you, man. I know you did a lot of work for that, and it came out excellent. Again, it's just another thing that we've been added to the summer, like these audio projects that highlight the team, and I just think it came out really amazing. It's not even awesome, amazing. Thank you. Thank you. You know, we we were talking to Ray Hudson, who you heard at the top of the show there, introducing the show. And because of his commitments to be in sports and Sirius XM, he couldn't be on the show, though he was interested in contributing. So he that's that's how we got him to do that little intro. That's something that he he could do. And so we're very appreciative to Ray for for doing that. And we understand, of course, you know, he couldn't be on the podcast in in long range. But you know, uh, he. I, I now consider him a friend of the podcast, uh, which is nice. <laughs> That's a good feeling. It is a good feeling. Does he get a guard of honor? You know, this, this is the thing. So, <laughs> But yeah, I mean, for me, Brian, I mean, just uh, getting those journalists together, obviously. And I just, again, just to, to listen to them talk about the matches in a different way than we are as super fans. I just thought it was really fascinating. And also, also, you know, obviously just the storytelling of it. You did, you did a great job. Like I said, I listened to the champions one, four times already. Yeah. It's, I'm pretty happy with that. I mean, it's so funny because the, so much of the conversation about it with everyone centered on Liverpool and it was di- not difficult, but it, the challenge of it was to get everyone to talk about the earlier stages, you know, the group stage, the round of, <laughs> the round of 16 yeah. and, and the, the whole path and to, to try and weave that all together. But it was a really good uh, assembly of journalists because they ranged uh, from, I think, like Robbie Dunn, for example, very professional, experienced journalist, really knows what he's talking about. But I don't think he necessarily has um, a deep abiding devotion to FC Barcelona so he's a little more objective which was nice and then on the other end of the spectrum you've got Diego Lorraine who yeah. is a self-identified Barca purist he is yeah. he he is a Kool-Aid drinker of FC Barcelona like we are yeah for sure but he but maybe even more so I think he might have an, an even longer I think his whole life he's been a Barca fan so uh so getting his perspective is one thing versus the slightly more objective view of Robbie Dunn and then Roy Nimmer is in the middle there he you know he's definitely more interested in Argent the Argentinian national team I think so that equates to Messi mainly but then he also has this peripheral Barcelona fandom so it's it was a nice spectrum and again great conversations and uh, really appreciate everyone taking time out of their days to to talk with me and uh yeah so if you want to hear all three of those episodes you can become a patron for five dollars a month and hear all three of them and uh we did release the copa del rey episode last week on the podcast feed if you haven't listened to that already feel free to check that out now we received a request from one of our patrons tj pittenger he's a fellow podcaster part of the big three roll-up which is about college football in florida focusing on just three schools in Florida. And he wanted us to discuss the new format and timing of the Spanish Super Cup. So historically, it's a tournament that's held before the beginning of the season between the winners of La Liga and the Copa del Rey. It's been a two-legged format at the club's respective stadiums. Last year, they held it as a single match in Morocco, which were both new developments. Now we'll have semifinal legs with four teams and a single match, no third place match and in a neutral location and in the middle of the season. So a lot of changes to the Supercopa. What to you is most the most striking change? The increase in clubs, the scheduling or the venue? The scheduling, for sure. The scheduling. Like you said, you know, all these are new changes that they've made, but definitely the scheduling. Now it's in the middle of the season. 
you know, before it was a really great way to kick off the season, you know, home and away. It's, you know, has some value to it as one of the first cups that a team can win. But again, it's definitely the scheduling. And Brian, I'm not a fan of this at all. <laughs> I was wondering how long it would take for you to come to. I mean, I knew that that's how you I feel the same way, but I knew that you would you would have that opinion. I was wondering. It didn't take that long. I think that, that was under <laughs> under 60 seconds. We, we clocked that in at. Well, well I, I, I appreciate I appreciate the effort that the that the RFA is trying to add more teams and make it a better uh, tournament type of thing. But just doing the beginning of the season still. I mean, the load management in the middle of the season is just too much for these teams, especially these teams that are going to be in the thick of Copa del Rey, Champions League, and La Liga. Right, exactly. Right. So given that, right, because all four of these teams are in the Champions League, they will have just finished the group stage at this point in the season, and they will they will not have even started the Copa del Rey because they're guaranteed to be in the round of 32, which doesn't start until, you know, the second half of the season, really. Sure. So for me, the question is, considering that the four teams involved in this are going to be Barcelona, Real Madrid, Atletico Madrid, and Valencia, all of whom are in the Champions League, they will have just finished the group stage of champions, and they will be about to start their round of 32 in the Copa del Rey right after this. So like you mentioned, the scheduling is really problematic. So who does the new format benefit? You know, thinking about it, I, I don't know if it benefits anyone because maybe I would say the well, I would say the out of these four, out of these four, I would say probably Valencia, because if we're looking preseason, they're not a preseason favorite for La Liga, and they're not a preseason favorite for Champions, but they can definitely win this Copa, right? So I think for them, it benefits them. But again, these are just added added games in the middle of the season, and so you know, I really hope Barca, for example, just uses their bench players or Barca B players. So. You know, it's, I would say it's not really beneficial in any way. It's just more of a nuisance in the middle of the season. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's why it was it was such a nice thing when it was a preseason game. It was exactly. like it was somewhere in between exactly. a a friendly and and a comp- competitive tie. You know, depending upon the teams playing. You know, when it was Barcelona Real Madrid in the Super Cup, it's there's always a little extra something to it. But you know, if it's Valencia Real Madrid or you know something like that. It's it takes on a little less uh, intensity, but when you put it in the in the middle in the in the thick of it, there everyone's in more competitive mode. But it's also just like yeah, it's such a burden. And I think honestly that it really benefits the RFEF, La Liga, and yeah. the clubs, all Spanish clubs in the long run in terms of expanding markets for Spanish club in other parts of the world. I mean, I think that's a big part of doing it in Saudi Arabia or, you know, last year they did Morocco this year, they're doing Saudi Arabia. I think it's, it's about exporting Spanish football to, to other markets with something that seems more competitive than the super cup has been in the past. Sure. I mean, you know, that is the plan, right? It's just the expansion of the league. That's why, I mean, they should have just kept it in the preseason. They should have kept a two leg final, but like, for example, just do it in the States, you know, one leg in Miami, one leg in New York, and then really show off the best football that La Liga has to offer or wherever else they want to do it. But it, this should be still in, in preseason because in the middle of the season, you just have too many chances of injury. It's just extra games. And, you know, for example, I know I really hope Barca doesn't take this Supercopa serious. Right. And that's actually kind of the next question that I wanted to get into, because this reminds me of the UEFA Nations League, mm. which is really just a rebranding of what have traditionally been international friendlies but then they create kind of this tournament around it and it 
ha- it has the potential to affect Euro qualifying, but it is itself not a European qualifier or a qualifying tournament. So the question arises, like when they did this last year, we were talking about, you know, how will this change the level of competition for what are ostensibly international friendlies? And that's kind of what the Super Cup is. It's not really, it's not really a friendly, but so how will this change the the level of competition? And much like we talked about with the Nations League, it all kind of depends on how the how the teams involved approach it. So like you said, if Valencia wants to really make a play for it so they can say, we won a Super Cup, right? Yeah. Um, then they might field a stronger 11. But maybe Barcelona, you know, every club has to have its priorities. Sure. So, you know, maybe some would go with a weaker 11. And I'm with you. I, I hope that they still treat this like a uh, less important thing to trophy to win. And they use the time to give the stronger players, the core eleven, who have already, who will have already been playing a lot by that time in the season, a time, you know, some time off. Uh, because also keep in mind, while the schedule won't conflict with the Club World Cup, which will be in December, hmm. th- it's yet another additional burden. So should Barcelona or whoever, uh, a Spanish club, uh, win the Champions League, for example? then they're also going to have to compete in the Club World Cup and, most likely, the, the Spanish Super Cup the following year. I mean, it just seems like an, a really unnecessary additional burden on the clubs. It is. It's super unnecessary. And that's the thing is that Champions League and La Liga are always going to be the top two and everything else will just flow from that. And again, I understand what you know they're trying to do with the Super Copa, but just keep it in preseason. You know, the problem, too, is also with all the preseason tours, for example, that Madrid does... Uh, Atletico and Real, and then also Barca, they don't want to um, conflict with those dates. So that's why they moved it up as well. It's kind of like in accordance with that because, you know, like Barcelona was all over the world this summer, you know, and that could have added to maybe some of the performance they had in the Samomes, you know, just with all this traveling, all this preparation, you know. And so, again, I, to me, it's just, it's such a nuisance. There's so many mid, you know, mid-season tournaments that are less, you know, and we need to fight for the most prestigious La Liga and Champions League and everything else. Just use Barca B players and the bench. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, we'll we'll see how they treat it this year. And uh, I'm with you, but I, you know, maybe we're just resistant to change. <laughs> <laughs> it could be. It could be. I never really thought of myself as a conservative, but maybe I maybe I kind of am in this regard. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's just money, right? This is all it is, man. It's just money and teams. And I mean, I just do this format, but just do it in preseason. You'll still get the same effect because the Supercopa was a nice, great way to kick off La Liga. For me, it was like a, like one of the things like, okay, Supercopa, that means La Liga starts the following week. I'm ready to go. And to have this in the midseason just kind of loses a lot of interest. Yeah, and I, I think if you kept the format, right, with the semifinals, you know, expand it to four teams, do semifinals and a final – but just move the scheduling to you know keep it before the season. I think I think that the desired effect would would still happen, and it would be much easier on the, much better for the the clubs. Exactly. I mean, imagine if it was in August and you had this foursome playing right the week before La Liga. This is amazing. You have yeah Madrid teams, Valencia and Barca, and whatever draw that comes out of it is going to be really great for preseason hype for La Liga. 
there's really nothing else going on around the world for competition. So you're going to be talking about the Supercopa and everyone's going to be watching. I mean, it's a perfect platform. But in January, December, you know, holidays, mid-season, people are not going to be as interested. Well, they might in Saudi Arabia. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. This is true. So maybe it's for them, right? Yeah, it's not yeah. for us. I don't know. Yeah. Last year, FCB Femini came in second in the league and made it to the Women's Champions League final for the first time. Our Femini correspondent, Michelle Taylor, who you can follow on Twitter, at Barca Women, is here to tell us about the transfer business that the women's team did over the summer and to get us ready for another season of Barca Femini football. Barca Femini had a very active transfer season over the past few months. Sporting director Mikel Zubizaleta and his team moved quickly to secure new players and to renew some key squad members. Before the Champions League final versus Lyon, Alexia, Mariona, Mappi, Leila and Vicky were all renewed until 2022. Coach U.S. Cortez was also signed on for another season, with the option of a further year. Before the FIFA World Cup kicked off in France, the first signing was announced, that of Norwegian Caroline Graham Hansen, who left German powerhouse Wolfsburg at the end of her contract. This was a major success for Zubizaleta, signing another top-caliber player before a major event, as he had done with Lika Martins. Goalkeepers Pam Tahona and Gemma Font were next to be renewed until 2020, as well as veteran Melanie Serrano, who will be playing her 16th season at Barca and is the club's longest-serving player at senior level. Talented midfielder Aitana Bomati was the next to be renewed until 2022. Then came the news that we had all hoped for. Barca had managed to buy out Azizata Shuala's contract from her Chinese club. The Nigerian had made a dramatic impact since arriving on loan in January and had set more personal records on the way, becoming the first Nigerian player to play in a Women's Champions League final and scoring a goal as well. Oshwala has also signed until 2022. The FIFA World Cup held in France over summer meant that a lot of the women's transfer activity was delayed until after the event. But Barca was still in the news as it became the club supplying the most players to the World Cup teams. 15 Blaugrana players went to the World Cup, 10 representing Spain, 2 for the Netherlands and 1 each for Brazil, England and Nigeria. The next announcement was of the promotional sort, two Barca B players joining the senior ranks, Carla Armengol and Laia Codina. 21-year-old winger Armengol was top scorer for Barca B last season, scoring 19 goals in 25 games. She has been at La Masia since 2010, joining the club when she was 12 years old. Codina is a Spanish youth international and in her fifth season at Barcelona. The 19-year-old Barca B captain can play as a central all-wing defender as well as in midfield. Both players are ones to look out for. We shall see big things from them, I'm sure. I'm particularly excited to watch Codina as she already plays with a maturity beyond her years. Her pairing with Mappy Leon in the central defence is going to be interesting to watch as it develops. Once Spain had bowed out of the World Cup, the next two signings came quickly and both with players returning to the club. Jenny Omoso left Barca for PSG in 2017 and then spent last season playing for Atleti where she won the Pachichi Award scoring 24 goals. Winger Andrea Sanchez-Falcon also returns after three seasons with Atleti. This was the only signing that made me wonder why. Nothing against Falcon as a player, but with Lika Martins and Carla Armengol able to cover the left attack, her signing didn't really make much sense, especially when the next renewal was that of Martins, the Dutch woman committing until 2022. 
Martin's renewal is another coup for Barca. With so much interest in her from other top clubs, it was important to secure her for another couple of seasons. The final signing was made with an eye to the future. Goalkeeper Catalina Coy was signed from Mallorcan club Coyarense. This is the same club that has produced players such as Patri, Mariona and Virginia Torresia, all of whom left Mallorca to play for Barcelona. 18-year-old Catalina already has a string of international accolades with Spanish age group teams. Last year she won the under-17 Euro and under-17 World Cup with Spain, as well as winning silver in the under-20 World Cup. But with three incumbent goalkeepers at Barcelona, Panos, Tajona and Font, the latter two having just been renewed for another season, Catalina would play on loan for Sevilla this season. As well as signings, we said adeo to five players. After seven years, Gemigili leaves to join Levante. Barbara Latore signed for Real Sociedad after four years with Barca. Macedonian Natasha Andanova leaves after two seasons, but will continue to play in Spain as she is signed for Levante. After three seasons, Andresa's Alves will play in Italy for Roma. Tony Dugan also left at the end of her two-year contract. Surprisingly, the Englishwoman hasn't returned to England, but has opted to remain in Spain, where she will play for Atleti Madrid. All in all, some good business was done by Barca Femini for this season, with Caroline Graham Hansen, Aziz Atashwala and Jenny Omoso bringing more firepower to the attack. We should have plenty of options up front. Of course, this means that U.S. Cortez has to find a balance in the team, as not all will be able to play every game, so his management skills will be the key to keeping everyone happy. The pressure will be very much on the team to win the Liga, after failing to win it for the past four seasons. For Barca Talk, I'm Michelle Taylor. Visca Barca, e forza Barca Femini. Thanks to Michelle Taylor for that. Again, follow her Twitter account, All About the Femini, at Barca Women, and now you can read Michelle's segments as articles on barsatalk.net. It's time now for the Barca Talk Guard of Honor to show our thanks to everyone who has chosen to support the podcast on Patreon. You know, we have so many people to give the Guard of Honor this week. Lots of people joined our community on Patreon over the summer, so this week we'll honor everyone who we didn't get to by the end of last season and some of our newer patrons, and we'll honor the rest next week. You're already getting a lot of value out of this podcast with the Monday episode every week of the season, but for just $5 a month, you can get even more. You'll get two episodes every week instead of one, commercial-free, plus bonus episodes like the full audio yearbook series and the Legend series that we've just started. Now is the perfect time to go to patreon.com slash barsatalkpod and join the community to be honored in this segment. Look for the link in our show notes. And now, we want to thank Sebastian Andrus, Luke H., Landon Lott, Craig Tomiyoshi, David Aguilar, Rob Lindsay, Hamza, Yanni Nilsson, Mario Perez, and Keith Lisenby. Thank you for all your support, and enjoy this pasillo. If you were watching the preseason friendlies, you got a chance to see some of the B-team players in action. And one guy who watches every Barca B game of the season, because we have convinced him to do so, is Max Bluer. Here he is with a report on Barca B's transfer business in the summer and their aspirations for this season in the Segunda B division. As always with the B-team, there has been much change over the summer. Let's start with the good stuff. Barca B's raison d'etre, and look at who has been promoted to the first team and who has a decent chance of moving up in the near future. Carles Perez and Iñaki Peña were both on the bench for the first team season debut at San Mamés, with Perez making it on for an admittedly disappointing final 15 minutes. 
Like the entire team, he was a bit rubbish. But the fact that Valverde had enough faith to put him on when Barca were chasing a goal surely bodes well. Coutinho's upcoming departure to Bayern opens up a space for a wide forward. And although much depends on whether Neymar ends up arriving, Carles looks like he'll be enjoying some minutes this season. It looks like the model to be followed will be similar to that of Carles Alenia last year, who started the season playing with the B team, but trained with the first team and was gradually integrated over the course of the year to become a fully-pledged first-team player by the year-end. Iñaki Peña was on the bench too, and the injury to Neto means that he will be with the first team for at least the next six weeks. To be honest, the signing of Neto didn't really make a lot of sense for Barca, as Iñaki proved last season that he's more than ready to be Testegen's understudy. But it does mean that he'll get regular playing time with the B team this season, something Garcia Pimienta will surely be grateful for. Other players that Pimi will be able to count on include new signings Luvidit Race and Hidoki Abe. Race, a defensive midfielder, agreed his transfer at the end of last season from Dutch side Groningen for just over 3 million euros, while Japanese winger Hidoki Abe came from Karishima Antlers. With all due respect to Hidoki, who I'm sure is a fantastic player, he wasn't the Japanese wide man that Barca fans had been hoping for or expecting over the summer. It caused a bit of a stink when Takefusa Kubo, who spent five years racking up some ridiculous goal-scoring numbers in La Masia, signed for Real Madrid having spent the entire summer being linked with Barca. Indeed, reports were that Barca refused to meet his wage demands and so Madrid swooped. Kubo's non-return caused plenty of consternation, but not so much as the departure of Xavi Simons to PSG. The charismatic Dutchman, while Dutch boy is he's only 16, has the hair of Carles Puyol and the first name of Xavi Hernandez, and the skills to match. He also has a suspiciously good social media game, which I suspect might be the main reason for Barca fans' anguish. But forget young kids departing to our rivals. A whole swathe of youngsters have been promoted from the ranks to the B team, and some are already beginning to make their mark. 16-year-old forward Ansu Fati, whose contract renewal for big bucks was a bit of a saga, has scored 15 goals in pre-season, three for the B team and another two for Victor Valdez's under-19s, while his fellow 16-year-old, Elias Moriba, a central midfielder of whom great things also expected, has been getting minutes in the B team's pre-season too. But their tender age means we won't be seeing too much of these two talents in the B team next year, at least in theory. But Barca did lack a real goal-scoring threat last season, and if there's one thing that Ansu knows how to do, it's score goals. One man who will hopefully be gracing us with his presence this season is Ricky Puj, after Valverde decided, to the annoyance of many, that he wasn't quite ready for the first team. Although having seen that performance at San Mamés on Friday, that opinion might change. The little Catalan consistently demonstrated the magic in his boots during the first team's pre-season in several starts, but he wasn't offered a first team contract and will likely be spending most of his time down in Segunda B. He may even struggle to get first team minutes in the Copa del Rey games, as Barca's midfield, as always, is absolutely packed with talent. Like Carlos Perez, Ricky may find himself on the same track as Carlos Alenia, beginning the season with the B team, but training with the big boys and slowly integrating himself into the first team setup. Alternatively, Ricky might go out on loan to a team at a higher level, where he'd be guaranteed plenty of minutes, either in Primera or Segunda. Various reports in Spanish media suggest that the club feel that this would be the best way to continue his development, although the player and his agent and family are not quite so sure. Local media suggests that second division club Real Zaragoza have made an offer to take him on loan, and so it's possible that Ricky will be playing at a higher level this year. A couple of Barcelona's other star men from last year also have rather uncertain futures. Juan Miranda, who played a starring role in Spain's victory at the Under-19s European Championships earlier this summer, clearly isn't Valverde's cup of tea, judging on the evidence of last season. And with Junior Firpo having signed from Betis as backup to Jordi Alba, Miranda would be unlikely to see many first-team minutes were he to stay. And so, naturally, he's been linked with moves away, either on loan or a transfer, with Barca inserting a buyback clause, with Juventus and Real Betis both linked. Dutch side FC Utrecht, with whom Barca have an arrangement to send players on loan, are another option, and probably where Miranda would be most likely to enjoy minutes. 
he may also meet up there with Oriol Busquets, another who proved himself too good for Segunda B last year and needs to go on loan to a higher level in order to advance his progression. As always with Barca B, the main objective of the season is to educate young players and get them in position where they can make the step up to the first team. Those best positioned to do that this year are probably Iñaki Peña, Ricky Puj and Carlos Perez, while the likes of Abad and Alex Collado will hope to build on some promising moments last year to really establish themselves as indispensable for the coach. Of course, promotion to Segunda would be fantastic. It's been far too long since the 2013-14 season when the team finished third in the second division, with the likes of Jean-Marie Dongou and Jordi Massip playing starring roles. Having the B team playing fully professional football, rather than against the semi-pros of Segunda B, would close the gap between the first and second teams, and hopefully make it easier to make the jump from one to the other. Ultimately though, and as Garcia Pimienta has said many times before, the goal for the season is to form first team players, not to win promotion. The Segunda B season gets underway next week, with Barca Bay making the trip to face Badalona. For Barca Talk, I'm Max Bluer. You can read his segments at barcatalk.net along with Michelle's. All right, so let's get into La Liga match day one. Uh, FC Barcelona went up against Athletic Bilbao in the San Mames. The result was a uh, 1-0 win for Athletic Club. Uh, and so Barcelona starting La Liga with zero points for the first time since 2008. Uh, I won't detail the entire 11, but I do want to touch on some key statistics. Athletic had 28.1% of the possession to Barcelona's 71.9. They each took 11 shots, but Athletic had five on target. Barcelona had two. And the passing accuracy, Barcelona did way better on that as well. They had 85.6% passing accuracy to Athletic Club's 70.7%. But obviously... Stats don't tell the whole story. The only important stat is that 1-0 scoreline at the end. So to start talking about the lineup, this obviously was not Valverde's full core 11 with the glaring absence of Lionel Messi. The midfield three of De Jong, Sergio Roberto, and Carlos Alenia was a really big change from what we were seeing last season. And even during preseason friendlies, Busquets and Rakitic started on the bench and Arturo Vidal and Arthur Melo were left off the squad entirely. So across the whole lineup, which of these players do you expect to see in the core 11 moving forward? Well, let's start with the defense. I mean, for the defense, for me, that is the starting core, you know, with Ter Stegen back there, Semedo, Pique, Longley, and Alba. You know, obviously, right. I think Ibe prefers Longley right now just because of his speed and his youth and he's just not injured. Right. And also just the way long lay can cover better with PK. So I think definitely the defense that's going to be our starting defense going forward as the core 11 in the midfield though, I only see maybe Dijon being in that. Um, I think Elenia Roberto are just not ready enough to be in the limelight, to be in the core 11 of the starting uh, midfield. Uh, I think they'll be used for Copa del Rey more often than not. And also just to cover for injury. Um, if we're talking forwards, I would say, yes, those, you know, Griezmann, Suarez and Dembele are going to be in the core 11. And obviously with Messi being out, Dembele is going to be used more as a super sub coming in late. Um, but obviously now with Suarez being hurt, that could open the door for Dembele getting more minutes. So, you know, I would say, if anything, the midfield is where the core, you know, in this match uh, is where the core 11 wouldn't be as strong. So going forward, especially with Busquets and maybe Rakitic um, being more in the core 11 going forward. Right, and the, the belief about De Jong is that he's there to uh, essentially succeed Busquets. 
So uh, do you think that the lineup that Valverde chose for this match is somehow a signal or indicative? I'm not sure that it is, um, but do you think that he's trying to send a message about what he wants to do or what he sees for this season uh, with his lineups? Because it was a little weird, especially that midfield. It was a little weird. It's, It's funny because, you know, this is the first game of the season, right? And we always say it's a long campaign and so forth. And so I was kind of surprised to see Busquets on the bench. But I don't think it's a message. I don't think, unfortunately, uh, Valverde is that smart to be, to, <laughs> to be sending a message that way. I just think that, you know, he wanted to start Dijon just because it's the beginning of the season. And I think he's going to try to preserve Busquets more now that he has Dijon and he has faith in him already to start him in the first match. So I think those are the two things going forward. But I don't think it's really a message. I think more than anything is, you know, first game of the season. He knows it's going to be a long season. And we'll see what what happens with the midfield, because the midfield for me is going to be the most interesting part of the season. That's going to tell us how we can perform in tough matches when we have possession, like in this match, but we don't do anything with it or how attack minded we are. Right. Well, let's talk about the formation and and their tactical strategy, because they played a kind of I wouldn't call it a flat 4-3-3, but, you know, a very clear line of four and three and three in the first half and then switched they switched to a triangle kind of in the second half when Rakitic came on subbing in for Alenia, where Rakitic was in the center with De Jong kind of level with him and then Sergio Roberto ahead of them as kind of a point more often than not. So they switched from kind of a three-man midfield line to almost a triangle with Sergio Roberto at the top. So do you think that the lack of goal-scoring opportunity was a byproduct of these tactics or the players not delivering? I think it was more about the tactics. You know, I've been clamoring lately that we need to get off the 4-3-3 because we just don't have the players to match that 4-3-3. I mean, if, you know, in this match, for example, Brian, the midfield had really never played together before. You know, obviously a couple preseason matches, but they've never played in a real match before. Um, you know, for me, I just like in this match, I would have preferred going to a 4-4-2 and using Griezmann and Suarez to play off each other. Um, I think... Griezmann is a good playmaker. Obviously, he has so much experience playing in a 4-4-2 system before at Atletico, and I think that would really benefit Suarez to have someone like that, especially when Messi's not playing. But again, and also, they're a formidable duo that way, and they also would occupy those central defenders. And I think when we go to a 4-3-3, when we don't have the midfield that we used to have, I think we lapse in, in those type of things. So, you know, Brian, the 4-3-3 is such a difficult formation to play, you know, we're seeing more and more holes, you know, lately in bigger matches, especially with tougher opponents. And we just kind of have to be a better evaluator of the team that we have available. So like for this game, I definitely would have gone with a 4-4-2. You're also more defensively sound. And also you, you can also be more attack minded with those two strikers up there. I know it's not going to happen. I know it's going to be a 4-3-3 for the rest of the season, but I'm just, we just need to get off of this. We need to be more, uh, adjusting to what we have on the bench because, you know, when Suarez came off with injury, we basically had no one. And I didn't think, you know, we had Rafinha that came in. And so we have to be able to adjust on the fly with this. Yeah. Now in the four four two that you're imagining, does Dembele figure into that in the midfield rather than in the front or is Dembele on the bench? He's on the bench, but he comes in for Suarez at the top. I see. Yeah. Yeah. I could get on board with that. <laughs> I mean, think about the midfield, you know, especially in this match, starting in a 4-4-2 with Suarez and Griezmann, 
And then you have Sergio Roberto, Lenya, De Jong, and Rakitic. Strong. Strong, right? And Very strong. <laughs> it is strong. And also you have balance on the on the width. And then also you have Griezmann and Suarez playing off each other. And then when Suarez comes off injured, you just put Dembele in there. Now you have speed up at the top, which you don't have with Suarez. Yeah, and, and especially know, fresh speed late in the game. Exactly, exactly. And Evie, you know, especially on the road and tough matches, he, he's always going to be more pragmatic, right? Because that's just his style. And this fulfills it, but also, you know, again... We were in an era with Iniesta, Xavi, and Busquets in the 4-3-3 that was magical. And it's really, really hard to replicate that. And you have to just be more adaptable with these lineups. You know, for me, Griezmann in Suarez pairing gets me excited. Sure. Now, uh, speaking of Suarez, he took an injury. He had a look at goal on a really poor back pass from Unai Lopez. He was clear, except for the goalkeeper, Unai Simon, shot it first time on the turn. And then had to come out immediate, almost immediately with a calf injury. So up to that point, how, how was Suarez looking to you? I mean, he looked okay. I mean, he was doing well to pressure on defense a couple of times. I know he went to ground a couple of times to try to, to intercept the pass. But again, his passing was horrendous again. I could not make simple passes. For me, that is the key. You know, if you're going to be a point man at number nine with your back to goal, you have to be able to hold the ball and just make those simple passes. He continues to not be able to do that. A couple of times, Brian, he was out wide trying to play make. Brian, this this cannot happen because this is just a bad recipe. Because if you have Suarez playmaking on the wide side, who's in the middle? Right. And plus, he's not a great playmaker. Sometimes, sometimes he is. But I, when I think of Suarez and his strengths, I really don't think of playmaking as one of his biggest strengths exactly it's just more about the instinct to be a, a quality striker and just hit the ball when he can and make goals that's that's essentially what i think of, of suarez but he always tries to do the back pass and sometimes they work but for him to be out wide to try to ignite the offense that's not his job he has to be up the middle pushing those central defenders being a nuisance and creating havoc and a couple of times when he was there he was not doing that and we just we had empty attacking you know we had possession but nothing was happening. Right, right. And so Rafinha came on for Suarez. And for most of the game, he had the most threatening shots. And I, for me, he was in the running for man of the match right up until Adrit scored that incredible game-winning goal for Athletic Bilbao. And so there has been talk about Rafinha moving to Valencia. And now a few Italian clubs have been rumored as well. This performance aside, considering Rafinha's injury history and with the transfer window still open until September 2nd, should the club keep him or have him move on? I mean, personally, I think he should move on. But, you know, we talked about Rafinha this summer. And, you know, Brian, if I would have told you after the first game of the season that Rafinha would have had more minutes than Artur, <laughs> you're like, you're crazy, right? I mean, and to me, I mean, yes, Rafinha had a good performance. He was the only one being threatening, taking shots and so forth. But, Again, with his injury history, I just don't have confidence in him to for the long season. I think that Barcelona should try to recoup some of that money. But again, I you know this goes back to Evie's substitutions, his lineup, his roster. That you know the board continues to bring these players, and we cannot, you know, Evie cannot get the most out of these players. Again, as we talked about, our tour was not even on the bench, and for me, I think he needs to play more. I want to see him play more because I think he brings that dimension of, of possession. But if we're just to talk to Rafinha, I think he should go to other teams because he'll get more playing time that way. Yeah. And I will say that at least he did something where, because where was Griezmann? 
And I know, I mean, we talked about the midfield. That midfield had almost zero chemistry. Those three guys have hardly played together at all. And I know that Griezmann is still new. We know that he's a great uh, forward. So I think there's currently still plenty of faith that Griezmann will work in. And once we get Messi back, then it, it will all kind of gel a little bit more. But seriously, where was Griezmann in this game? Yeah, and, you know, also where was Alba? You know, that's the other thing, too. He didn't yeah. have a good match. I mean, you know, the thing is, you know, when you have these players coming in, it's the first game of the season. You're trying to work out the kinks. You know, when they did play preseason, they weren't, you know, linking up either. But again, Brian, I just think that the formation doesn't suit our players right now. You know, for example, you know, with Griezmann, he normally doesn't play out that wide, you know. So this is a new style that he has to adapt to. And again, this match is a microcosm of everything we've had the last few seasons with EV. When a team presses us high and they score, we can, we're, we are mentally weak to come back. You know what I'm saying? Like we, as soon as they scored a goal, then all of a sudden we were, we were up for the match. But for the first 80 minutes, we were just playing for a tie. Yeah. And so speaking of which, the one goal scored by Aritz Aduritz, the 38-year-old athletic Bilbao legend... He came on in the 88th minute for Inaki Williams and just a minute later scored a ridiculous goal, twisting in the air on a volley. It was his first touch of the ball, and he was, with added time, he was on the field for a total of five minutes, and he was a five-minute man of the match. <laughs> I mean, this guy's a legend, also because of his age. I think he's 38 or 39 now, but... Yeah. Yeah, he, he's a Bilbao legend for sure, but... I just know. said he's 38, but, you yeah, know, yeah. that's... Sorry. No, if you don't want to listen, that's fine. That's... <laughs> I always, I always love this guy because I always feel like I could be him because we're such, we're so close in age. You know, I'm like, I can just, I can still lace him up, but uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> but Adriz just had a really, I mean, that, that goal was spectacular. And again, it's just, you know, like you said, we had all this possession, couldn't do anything. And Adriz made the best of his opportunity. It was a great cross that no faults. I mean, it, the cross came in between Semedo and PK and, you know, either rates just hit that perfect scissor kick and, and Ter Sagan couldn't do anything about it. Yeah, and I mean, it was a, it was, I won't, I won't say it was a fluke, but I mean, it was definitely a low probability situation. I don't think you can necessarily blame anyone for for not being on top of Adritz. He just happened to show, you know, essentially all of his prowess in that one moment. And plus the, the everything, you know, the stars aligned along with his experience and talent to to score that. And I mean, it was completely unsavable. So I, you know, I don't think you can necessarily blame anyone for like not covering him or it was, it was just, it was just one of those things, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was a great cross. It, it found the hole between the two defenders and other eats did well to, I mean, not did well. He did really well to, to, to hit that scissor kick, which is obviously a difficult finish and to place it past her Stegen as well. So kudos on that for that one play it was a great cross and got to move on from that. Right. So what additional points do you want to make today? I mean, just the possession. I mean, Brian, I mean, we had 73 possession, but man, this match was boring. Uh, we <laughs> had no chances. You know, Brian, it's funny because um, I, ha I was at a dinner party on Friday night, so I couldn't watch it live. And I got the text message from a friend of mine that said, oh, my God, this this match is you're not missing anything, you know. <laughs> and so I, I watched the match on replay and watching this match on replay, Brian, just proves to me that you know, the style that we have lost, you know, we don't have that flair. We don't have the idea to come up with plan B, plan C when we're attacking. 
One other thing that I noticed as well, Brian, was our first touch was really bad. You know, like every time we were to get the ball, we were chasing the ball because of our first touch. But really, Brian, you can have 90% possession, but if you're only taking two quality shots in 90 minutes, what's the point? What's the point? I'd rather, you know, have us play counter and try to be more scary on counter than to have this type of possession. Because this is this is going to be the style all season, unfortunately. We're going to have this type of possession with low goal output. And this possession stat that I mentioned at the beginning, Barca with nearly 72% of the ball, it's really deceiving. Sure, statistically, they had way more possession, but it, it was really fragmented by turnovers. Yeah. They were yeah. they were giving the ball away a lot. They were recovering it a lot also, but they were giving it away a lot. And so a lot of that possession wasn't all at once. We weren't really able to maintain possession of the ball. And I think that goes to your your next point about Arthur. You've already mentioned Arthur, but he is one guy who can really hold on to the ball and give the give the team some some consistency of possession. It's not just, you know, it's the that 72% is just the sum of all of their possessions of the ball. It doesn't tell the story about how what they did with it and how, you know, the length of stretches that they had it for. But Arthur could have really helped with that. For sure, for sure. I mean, this is this is always goes back to the manager in that, you know, this match was always going to be a difficult match, right? First game at the Samamez, which is one of the, the hardest places to play. Bilbao always plays us tough. And the idea that I just feel that he's just so loose with the lineups and there's just no direction. It's like, do we want to go all attacking? Do we want to go all defense? Do we want to go possession? What What is the goal of the, of the match, right? Obviously, besides winning the match, right? What, what kind of direction do we want to go? And then build the lineup from that. I mean, if he wants possession, Artur needs to be there. And to me, you know, there were so many times where Alenia got the ball and he had a really bad first touch that led to turnovers, just like you said. So like you said, it was really fragmented, right? And the other thing too, just how many times did Alba have the ball and he was just standing still over the ball? Right. I mean, yeah, there was a lot of waiting. Exactly, because they just don't know the system. Because now you have these players that aren't, they don't have the DNA like the other academy players to always be moving, coming to the ball, facing the ball, these type of things. Especially on that left side, especially when Griezmann would get the ball, he was so far out wide and so back that the defense didn't have to do anything to defend it. It was very easy defending. And to me, it's just, you know, in this match, I would have loved to see Rakitic start, maybe DeJong and Artur. I think that would have been a really good lineup for against Bilbao because, Brian, the first 15 minutes was just a barrage by Bilbao. And we just we just basically showed up and didn't realize the season had started. Right. <laughs> yeah, so we seemed a little late, a little late oh to the gosh. to the tournament. <laughs> and this is this always goes back to like the the personality that just trickles down from the manager, you know? It's 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 he should know above anyone else how difficult it is to play there. You know, the advantage that they have, you know, it's basically a 95% to 5% audience there. It's just all Bilbao fans, you know, um, it's a really tough stadium to play. And we weren't up for the fight until maybe minute 28 or so. Yeah. And that's a long time. Yeah. Yeah. And we, I mean, this, just... this is the thing, you know, especially coming off of the Champions League run that whole month of May. You just want to see some sort of improvement and so forth. And to me, there's just nothing. It's going to be more of the same from last season. And, you know, we are so dependent on Messi. Without him, we cannot score goals. And when we don't have him in the lineup, any team can beat us. Right. And I think that, well, there was clearly a lack of of playmaking and creation from the midfield as well. Again, that midfield was a really big 
uh, problem in this match. It was a big Achilles heel because three good players, definitely good players, uh, one of the team captains, you know, one of our La Masia products, this exciting new uh, Dutch youngster, Franca de Jong, again, who you, I think, rightly pointed out, looked the best of the three. But the three of them playing together and trying to create things for the front three, that was not clicking. And But the more s- systemic thing uh, that we've noticed is bad touches, bad first touches, and a lot of waiting around to, to look for a pass, uh, less anticipation, and less one-touch passing. So th- they're not moving the ball the way the way that they could. And I think that does come down to Valverde and his his um, priorities. You know, in training, you if you want a team that's going to be moving a lot and passing quick and having a good first touch, you want to spend time in training on those things. And I, I just don't get the sense that Valverde is using the training sessions to address those things and to instill that and really imprint that on the players because they could all do it. They're all skilled enough to do it. But if you don't make that a high priority, then this is the result that you get in a match. I mean, that's a good point. I mean, the thing is from me, I, I just get the idea that, you know, he's been given this team, this budget, these players, these superstars. And I feel as though he's just responsible for putting out the lineups and just in charge of the training, but he's not coaching do you know what I'm saying? He's not he's not teaching them to do stuff to to advance stuff. I think he just rolls out the lineup, charges the training because the thing is I haven't seen any improvement from when he first started with the team. Like you, to me, I can't say yeah we're you know we don't score goals, but man, we are amazing on defense. No, right. We're great on set pieces. If you take Messi out of the equation, we're not. Right. <laughs> Are we better in attacking? No. I mean, it's just because we have Messi and Suarez and just because of their natural talent, they're going to be able to score goals. Do we still have the tiki-taka passing? No, we're kind of losing that style more and more every year. So you still at the highest level have to teach and have to coach these players. And I just feel that he doesn't do that. And again, just like you said, it's just frustrating because we know we have the talent. And right. especially like with this Coutinho thing, we're just ruining careers lately. <laughs> uh, you know, like Malcolm and Coutinho. And it's just, you know, you cannot say that the board is bringing these players for him and nothing's happening, you know? Right. So again, I'm just, it's frustrating because we want the style. We just want some sort of identical style. Are we going to be defensive? Are we going to be just all out attacking, but figure it out? And I'm on board, you know, but just give me, right. just tell me what you, tell me what you want to think, Brian. Yeah. Tell me what you want. <laughs> well, you know, a, a little counterpoint, to uh, what you were just saying is that uh, during the match here in these states on BN, what what our friend Ray Hudson was saying is that what he was observing was actually that the the guys seemed almost to be too heavily coached. I mean, Dembele is a great example. Here's a player who we know has fireworks in his boots, and he can be really electric, but he seemed subdued, and it almost seemed like he was trying to exercise some kind of a discipline, and it, it raises a question because they at times they almost looked overcoached like mm. like they weren't especially the front three weren't necessarily being asked or being allowed and be, being permitted to just be creative and and have flair it, they almost seemed like restricted by potentially mm. some some level of coat or too much coaching 
Yeah, it's funny because I wouldn't call that coaching then. I would just call that as just like, you know, just restriction, you know? Right. But if, if but I would say that's, that's a good point on him. I would, because when I think of overcoaching, I think of uh, like a coach going on the side and just over-exaggerating tactics and plays like to the, to the ninth degree. But you never see Valverde do that. So I think Ray Hudson has a point, not the overcoaching idea, but just like restricting, just like you say, like he restricted Dembele. He says like, Dembele, you can't do this. You can't do that. You can't do this. And just not letting them play football the way they should play. You know, that's the thing. The hardest thing to do, especially when football is just being so restricted inside a game plan when you know the game plan, it doesn't work. Right. And I think one, another because Dembele was probably of the front three, potentially the most dynamic because we know he has such incredible speed. Uh, you know, not that Griezmann and Suarez aren't great, but particularly Dembele's speed, that was really not exploited in this match. And I do wonder if that has something to do with his his injuries of late. You know, maybe there's been kind of a more of an effort for him to not push himself to sprint so hard. And they're trying to work him into a slightly more uh, suave role of creation yeah. and, and dribbling because uh, he, he is also really good on the ball. And I think at least he didn't give the ball up as much as he was last season. I think in this match, at least, there I saw some improvement in Dembele giving up the ball. Uh, but what we lost was those sick runs from him just bombing down the wing with a, a through ball into space because there were times where there was plenty of space in behind. It's going to be a long season, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. Because, you know, the thing is, you know, we see it. We see the potential with this team. Like, for example, let Semedo loose. Let him overlap with with Dembele. Take chances. You know, for me, Brian, with this midfield, you know, if you're going to ride or die with this midfield in this game, like, that's what you're saying. In the Samamez, you're saying this is the starting midfield. Then just let him play it out. Like, like just let him play it out. Just let it figure it out. Because the minute that you do that midfield and then you automatically do the adjustments and stuff, it just it sends a bad message. And I'm all aboard if you want to use the young team. I, I'm, I'm good with that. If you want to use Alenia and Dijon, and um, who was the last other midfielder? Sergio Roberto. Sergio Roberto. Like, if you want to go, who's with not that, so young anymore? He's twenty-seven. He's not, he's not so young anymore. That is true. <laughs> but if you want to go with that, then go with it. You know, but just go with it. You know, for example, I noticed that in the first half, Dijon and Alenia were overlapping too much, and they were colliding a couple times because they just weren't used to it. But obviously, Brian, they're really good players, and by minute fifty. They were figuring it out, you know, and just let them figure it out. Let well, they would have been had Valverde not put Rakitic in for Elena at halftime. I don't understand. Like, he makes the move for this and then makes adjustments, and it's still 0-0. You know, it wasn't like the game was out of hand at that moment where it needed Rakitic. Obviously, Rakitic brought a stability to the midfield, but it was 0-0, and we were still okay at, at, at halftime. Just, again... Give advice, let him go. You know, from like you said, Brian, we want to see Dumbelli just bomb that side because that is the most exciting. Right. And him playmaking is not his forte. <laughs> right, right. And as far as the whole Rakitic coming in at halftime, I, I think that because you were kind of alluding to that just a moment ago, I think that did send uh, a bad message, not necessarily to Elena particularly, but really to kind of everyone that like, oh, there's no real clear plan. Because if you're going to start that midfield, you have to expect you. I mean, if you're yeah. a, Ernesto Valverde, you have to expect that that midfield is going to have some problems. And maybe that was part of the plan. Maybe everyone knew ahead of time, you know, look, we're going to try this, go out there and do this and this and this. Um, and if it doesn't work out, we'll make a switch at halftime. If you've prepared everyone for that eventuality, OK, fine. And we don't know how it worked out. 
But for for an outsider looking in, it did seem really like, oh, I had this idea. It didn't it didn't work out for 45 minutes. And now I'm going to change it up and put Rakitic in. And again, without any prior warning to the players, I think that can be a little demoralizing because it makes you think, man, this our, our boss, like, I'm not sure what he's doing, you know? Excellent points. I mean, that's the thing. You're, you know you're going to have growing pains using this midfield in this MMS. Like, you just know it. But just write it out. I mean, again, like you said, exactly. you know, just have the plan. Maybe they don't. But again, I don't know, man. It's, it's just frustrating because, you know, we, we have the talent, Brian. We are supremely talented this season compared to other teams in La Liga. But the style of play is becoming every week and week more unbearable to watch it because of there's no, you know, I was watching a highlight today of this, this goal from like 10 years ago. And it was just like so romantic, right? The way they move the ball back and forth. And, you know, it's becoming really difficult to, to watch these matches just because of the style of play. And I just really hope, you know, I really hope that Valverde sees the light and just lets these players just play, especially like Dembele and score goals. You know, we, we have the team to score goals. We can score. We have Griezmann, Dembele, Suarez, and Messi. <laughs> Yeah, and even without Messi, that should be formidable. Exactly. That's that's more than 50 goals, baby. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> <You know>? <sighs> All right. Well, yeah. You know, we'll 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 pick it up uh actually well we'll pick it up later this week on Patreon and we'll pick it up next week for uh for for everyone on the podcast feed, but that's it for now, right? Yes. Until next <laughs> week, right? <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's all we got. Barca Talk is a production of Sound It Media, written by Brian Henderson and Gabriel Quiroga, with contributions from Max Bluer and Michelle Taylor. Editing and post-production by Brian Henderson, music by Brian Henderson, social media and promotion by Two Point Go. Support the show on Patreon for double the weekly episodes and more bonus content. Until next time, Visca Barca. Sports Social Podcast Network. When everyone's on the same page, getting things done at work is easy. No matter what you do or what industry you're in, how you communicate is key. Everything you type is equally important to collaboration, and Grammarly can help. Think of it as your AI writing partner, empowering you to communicate effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact in the workplace. 96% of Grammarly users say it helps them craft more impactful writing. And as the gold standard of responsible AI, Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that allows your team to make their point and move faster. By understanding your writing and context, Grammarly provides relevant, personalized suggestions. And with tone suggestions, you can navigate even the most difficult work conversations. You can also save time from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds with one click. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said, done.